Welcome to Uncharted, the UN Watch podcast. My name is David Naftalin, and I'm UN Watch's Morris B. Abram Fellow, coming to you from Geneva, Switzerland. On today's episode, UN Watch Executive Director Hillel Neuer speaks about how the UN Human Rights Council is serving to empower dictatorships and perpetuate double standards against Israel. Neuer explains why this matters and what we can do to fight back. His remarks were originally delivered on a panel co-sponsored with Honest Reporting. The Human Rights Council has magnificent origins. The founding chair of what was used to be called the Commission on Human Rights was Eleanor Roosevelt in 1946. René Cassin was the vice chair. He wrote the Universal Declaration on Human Rights through that commission. But over time, it changed and it became a body of governments, a body eventually of dictatorships. China joined, Sudan joined. 2003, famously, Libya's Gaddafi regime became the chair. 1946, the chair is Eleanor Roosevelt. 2003, the chair of the Human Rights Commission is Colonel Muammar Gaddafi. 2006, Kofi Annan says we need to change this Human Rights Commission. It's not working. He scraps it, calls for a new body called the Human Rights Council. And we now are in the 15th year of the new and improved Human Rights Council. What are we going to see when the Human Rights Council opens its main annual session? Well, you're going to see new members like China, one of the worst human rights violators in the world, affecting 1.3 billion people who have no freedom of speech, no freedom of assembly, no freedom of religion. One million Uyghurs are herded into camps. Human rights lawyers are trampled. And uh, Hong Kong has been overrun. Uh, Democracy is being extinguished. The Tibetans, their temples have been destroyed. China has just been elected a member of the Human Rights Council. Russia's Vladimir Putin, who poisons dissidents, whenever he can. A few years ago, it was Vladimir Karamurza, twice poisoned, someone that we hosted at the UN, and most recently, Alexei Navalny, the current most prominent opposition figure. He was poisoned when he survived, um, was taken to Germany to be revived, made it, came back to Russia. They said, ah, you left Russia. You weren't supposed to leave Russia. You violated your parole. And now they convicted him and sent him to prison, a, a uh, conviction that was just upheld in a fake uh, appeal hearing in Vladimir Putin's regime. He's going to take his seat. Cuba's dictatorship, a dictatorship lasting more than six decades. Artists are arrested, thrown into prison, no freedom of speech, you know, one name on the ballot. Cuba's just been elected to the Human Rights Council. And these dictatorships join Pakistan, which was just reelected. They join Libya, which treats migra- migrants like slaves, Eritrea, a failed state, Somalia, a failed state, Venezuela, um, a country that has a regime, the Maduro regime destroyed one of the wealthiest countries by its oil reserves. Uh, four to five million people have fled. Judges are thrown into prison, tortured, opposition activists uh, thrown into prison, exiled. So that's the Human Rights Council. They're not all the countries, there are democracies there too, but 60% of the Human Rights Council failed to meet the minimal democracy standards. The United States just rejoined the Human Rights Council. Uh, what do I think about that? What does UN Watch think about that? Well. Um, we have concerns, but it's complicated. The uh, Human Rights Council did not get better when the US left. The US historically has always been on the Human Rights Council. They left in 2006 when it was the new and improved council under George W. Bush. They were gone for three years from 2006 to 2009. It did not get better. It did not go away. I was there. Many of you have seen my speeches. Uh, One speech when the uh, chair of the council 
when I spoke about Eleanor Roosevelt and René Cassin, he ripped into me and he said, if you ever give that speech again, I will delete it from the records. It's on the internet as the banned speech. So that happened in 2007 when America left. I mean, had America been there, the same speech would have happened as well, the same actions of the chair. Um, but um, that uh, the America leaving did not make it better. The Human Rights Council is not going away. Europe is fully committed to it. Basically every other country is committed to it more or less and it's not going away. So um, the, uh, under the Trump administration, uh, John Bolton, Nikki Haley, um, uh, Secretary of State um, Pompeo, they announced that they were leaving about two, little more than two years ago. Also, it didn't get better. So leaving doesn't make it better. Does rejoining make it better? Not necessarily. When the Obama, Obama administration was there, they worked very hard to try and introduce some resolutions on dictatorships. They did some, uh, but the Israel resolutions, they couldn't really change them. I'll talk about the actions on Israel. They couldn't really change them. So um, we think ideally being there and fighting for what's right, being a Patrick Moynihan, the iconic 1975 US ambassador when Zionism is racism was adopted at the General Assembly. He famously took the floor and gave one of the most brilliant speeches ever delivered at the United Nations in 1975. So to have a Patrick Moynihan, to have a Gene Kirkpatrick speaking out um, and speaking truth to power would be the ideal. However, when the Obama administration joined last time, they became kind of very pro the Human Rights Council. They became even the cheerleader of the Human Rights Council. When they would summarize what happened in the last session, they would often emphasize the good things and they would downplay the negative things, including many anti-Israel, but also anti-Western, anti-human rights resolutions sponsored by Cuba. So we hope the US government doesn't do that this time. And we'll be working closely with them and trying to make sure that they do the right thing. How does the Human Rights Council treat Israel? And this is kind of, I think, a um, microcosm of what the, how the United Nations treats Israel. First, you may be asking who cares about the Human Rights Council? Who cares about the United Nations? But according to the Pew Global Opinion Survey, 50, 60, even 70% of the population in major democracies, France, the UK, Germany, the United States, regard the United Nations as credible. UN resolutions go around the world, translated in every single language, whether you like it or not, UN resolutions are influencing the hearts and minds of hundreds of millions of people. Like it or not, what is said and done at the United Nations matters. What is said and done at the Human Rights Council matters. There's a reason why China, Russia, Cuba invested enormous energy to be there because it is regarded as having the imprimatur of international legitimacy, the Human Rights Council of the United Nations. So whether you like it or not, what is said and done there matters. How does it affect Israel? You may say the resolutions are not binding. That is legally true, but in practice, that doesn't mean anything. You will recall the infamous Goldstone Report, which uh, was this uh, inquiry, commission of inquiry after the Israel-Hamas war of 2008-2009. And the report uh, famously accused Israel not only of some soldiers or officers of committing violations during the war, which can happen, it does happen in every war, but that Israel's leaders, civil and military, deliberately plotted to murder civilians. It was a blood libel, it went around the world, and it influenced the International Criminal Court. The International Criminal Court, which announced recently that it has jurisdiction to go after Israeli officers, Israeli leaders, which is a very big concern in Israel, that is influenced by the Human Rights Council, influenced by its reports like the Goldstone Report. So these things do have an impact, whether you like it or not. Um, what is coming up at this session of the Human Rights Council? Well, I mentioned the dictators that will be sitting there. Uh, let me tell you what's coming up on Israel. 
well, there will be a special agenda item only on Israel. Yes, agenda item four for the whole world, 193 countries treated in one day, item four. And then item seven, only Israel gets its own special agenda item. No other country in the world, not North Korea, not Syria, which has killed half a million people, not Sudan, which whose former leader was wanted for genocide. No other country in the world, not Venezuela, gets its own agenda item, only Israel. Then there's gonna be four reports, reports on the human rights situation in the Golan, in the Golan Heights, which has um, uh, several thousand Druze who live there. And according to the UN Human Rights Council, Israel's violating human rights of the Druze, which is absurd. You can go there, uh, go to Majdal al-Shams, and it's a very pastoral place, and there are no major human rights violations there, but there'll be four reports against Israel, and there'll be five resolutions. So let me give you some context. Special agenda item on Israel, as I said, no agenda item on Iran, which last year massacred 1,500 of its own people, which requires all women and girls to cover their hair or they go to prison. Uh, no special agenda item on China, which I mentioned herds 1 million Uyghurs into camps. There will be four reports on Israel. There is no mandated, rep mandated report on Hamas, which forces uh, women to have a guardian um, and uh, kills gays and uh, throws people like Rami Yaman, a peace activist, in prison for months because he had a Zoom call with Israeli peace activists. No special mandated report on Hamas, no mandated report on Turkey, which purged thousands of academics, civil servants, judges, exiled journalists like Chandundar and Yavuz Baidar, people that we brought to speak at the United Nations, amazing people. No mandated resolution, um, no, no, no mandated report on Turkey. Then there's gonna be resolutions at the end of the session. There's going to be no resolution on Saudi Arabia, which tramples women's rights and has women's rights activists in prison, subjects them to electric shocks. There is no resolution on Zimbabwe, a country where the elites have stolen billions of dollars from their people, a completely corrupt regime, even after Mugabe is gone. And uh, there is no resolution on Pakistan, which uh, allows people like Asya Bibi, a Christian mother of five who was um, sentenced to death for blasphemy because the mob said that she was Christian. They said she blasphemed against the prophet Muhammad and she was on death row for nearly a decade, only recently released. And that kind of thing happens all the time in Pakistan. No resolution on Pakistan, but five on Israel. One of the resolutions on Israel will be talking about the Goldstone Report, saying why is Israel not implementing the Goldstone Report and making references to the International Criminal Court, trying to feed into the International Criminal Court. Um, and the resolution will also talk about the vaccines, apparently, that there'll be some reference that Israel supposedly discriminates about vaccines, which, as I said, is a lie. Um, now, the Human Rights Council is being defended by people like Ken Roth, the head of Human Rights Watch, who tweets against Israel almost every day or two, um, almost every day, maybe two or three times a day. He said, if the Biden administration wants to reduce the number of resolutions on Israel at the UN Human Rights Council, it should end the US practice of vetoing resolutions on Israel at the Security Council, which is why governments turn to the Rights Council. So according to Ken Roth, he's trying to exonerate the Human Rights Council for this absurd pathological demonization of Israel in one-sided resolutions. He's trying to exonerate them and trying to blame the US. He's saying governments turn to the Rights Council, they have no choice because America vetoes. So it's America's fault they're vetoing in his scenario, reasonable resolutions, reasonable governments, think about it. The ones introducing the resolutions 
are countries like Syria, Iran, the PLO. These are not reasonable governments coming to do something reasonable. These are dictatorships who always attack Israel. For nearly five decades, they've introduced 20 resolutions a year at the UN General Assembly. Every year, a resolution at the World Health Organization, a report at the International Labor Organization, a resolution against Israel at the Women's Rights Commission, a resolutions against Israel at UNESCO and resolutions against Israel at the Human Rights Council. It has nothing to do with whether America vetoes or not. When America didn't veto the resolution 2334 at the end of the Obama administration, did they stop introducing resolutions at the Human Rights Council? Of course not. They continue to introduce resolutions in all the UN bodies. So Ken Roth is falsely trying to blame the US veto and the US is right to veto biased resolutions. Why do countries um, vote against Israel, so many of them. Uh, part of it is the Arab countries, Islamic countries historically said, if you vote for our resolutions, we will vote for you, vote trading. They have 56 votes in the Islamic group. Israel only has one. Vote trading is powerful. They have oil reserves. They have sovereign wealth funds. They have, they can, you can be afraid of terrorism in your country if you don't vote. Um, if, you, if you vote differently and you don't vote with the pack against Israel. So all of those are rational reasons why many countries vote against Israel. But there's also, I believe, um, reasons that are supra-rational. As my teacher, Professor Erwin Kotler has said, uh, when in the Middle Ages, and I mentioned it before, when there was the Black Plague, they would say the Jews poisoned the wells. And today, if you're at the Human Rights Council, at the United Nations, at many bodies, the meta-criminal, the arch-criminal of the world, violating women's rights, children's rights, labor rights is the Jewish state. Israel has become the Jew among the nations. So if we're speaking about anti-Semitism, I believe there are many realpolitik, pragmatic factors, money, vote trading, oil, that can be explained rationally, but I do believe many countries, European countries, enjoy voting against the Jewish state, demonizing and scapegoating Israel. How can we fight back? In a few words, we need to advocate. Um, I recently spoke with the House of Lords in the UK. The Br Britain is one of the members of the Human Rights Council. So is France, Germany, Netherlands, Italy, Austria, Denmark. They're on the Human Rights Council. We need to urge our democracies, and America is going to join. We need to urge our democracies to do the right thing. You can all go on our website. We have a new website called unwatch.org slash database. unwatch.org slash database. You will find petitions there to every country in the world you can urge your country to do the right thing, unwatch.org slash database. Finally, we need to explain who stands behind the resolutions. Sitting around the table are not Socrates, Aristotle, and Plato, but Gaddafi, Castro, and the House of Saud. That's something we need to explain and something that UN Watch does every day, explaining who stands behind these resolutions, who are the members of the Human Rights Council. That's something we need to do. You can follow us on social media, follow UN Watch, follow me, Hillel Neuer, on Twitter, on Facebook. You can help spread the word. So folks, thank you so much for your support. I invite you all to learn what's happening. Sign up at unwatch.org so you can get the latest information and you can help spread the word together. We can fight back, we can make a difference. And I assure you, we, we at UNWatch will not give up. Thank you very much. Well, thank you so much, Hillel. You know, I'm always impressed whenever I talk to you about your depth of understanding of what really goes on behind the scenes at the United Nations. and I. I think from our point of view, working with the media, the more people understand that the UN is a political body with all of the ups and downs and human flaws of any political body, the easier it is to point out, look, they sometimes get things wrong. Sometimes it's anti-Semitic, sometimes it's hypocritical, sometimes it's just politics. But just because the UN said something doesn't 
necessarily make it true. And, uh, but people don't know that, which is what we call the halo effect uh, when something gets into the news. I wanna throw out a question here. Um, Goldstone himself later rejected his first report saying that the new information had been presented to him, which was not present at the time he made the original report. Any comments regarding this and his, uh, did his self rebuttal have any effect? Yeah, it's a, a, thank you for that question. <clears throat> it's a fascinating development. I mean, the whole thing about the Goldstone report was this very strange uh, story um, and uh, uh, it, it deserves its own lecture, but briefly, Goldstone was someone from, who grew up in the Jewish community in South Africa, had been somewhat involved with uh, Hebrew University and, and some other Jewish organizations. Um, and it, was, it wasn't expected that he would preside over something that would be so anti-Israel. And I think that it's sort of a mystery how it happened, but the report was, was a blood libel. Again, it was 500 pages, which although it mentioned Hamas and um, although it had the appearance of both sides, it uh, in fact, again, it accused Israel's leaders of deliberately plotting to murder Israelis. And Hamas, if, if you, you know, mentioned that Hamas did some crimes, they're already rolling in mud, they're terrorists. They don't really care, but if a democracy um, is accused of, of, of war crimes, basically acting like the Nazis, that has enormous effect on its ability to function. And again, Israel was defending itself from terrorists. And uh, so famously, so the report itself was very bizarre. We know some of the people who wrote the report. There was a woman, one of the women who, one of the staffers who worked on the report was Dr. Hritje Bars, a Dutch Marxist law professor who was a spokeswoman for the flotilla the Turkish sponsored IHH flotilla that had martyrs who were coming on it to, to die a, a, as shahids um, uh, in, in the famous Mavi Marmara episode. Um, this woman who was a spokesman for that campaign, she ended up writing, working for the UN. She was hired by the UN to write chapters of the report. Judge Goldstone didn't write the chapters, staff wrote it, but he signed his name to it. It was a big mistake. To his credit, about a year and a half later, he wrote a famous op-ed in the Washington Post where he said, had I known now what, had I known then what I know now, I would not have made the same accusations. And he retracted them. Now we could say it's too late, the damage was done. It's true, but um, you know, uh, repentance is always a good thing. And it was very significant. If someone says the Goldstone report, the Goldstone report, you can say, well, Goldstone himself retracted the main charge that Israel's leadership deliberately planned to kill civilians. So I think the retraction was very significant. And I give him credit for having repented in that regard. He also wrote another op-ed in the New York Times um, saying that he was South African, that Israel should not be compared with apartheid. And that was also a good thing. So whether he could undo all the damage, I don't think so, but he did, those were important steps. And I give him credit for that. Um, and it was important. Now, did it, did it delete the reports? No, the other three commissioners who were uh, very anti-Israel people, they said, well, he retracted, but we don't retract it. The report still stands and uh, the report is still there on the record and it's used you know, when people want to indict Israelis in visiting England, whether it's Tsipi Livni or General Doron Almog, they go to a British court and annex one of their criminal complaint is the Goldstone report. So it, it's still doing damage, but he did make those retractions and they were significant. And uh, I do give him credit for that. Well, thank you, uh, Hill, for that very thorough answer. Um, I'm going to... Uh jump to a question here. Uh, what can you tell us about the iconization of uh, people like uh, Nelson Mandela and Yasser Arafat? And so it affects us in our work in the media and it also affects you with your work in the UN. How do you deal with figures that are sort of seen as icons 
and who uh, you feel that you need to um, you need to refute them, but it's not very easy because they have such high credibility, deserved uh, or otherwise. Yeah, obviously, those who want to attack Israel will try to use every trick. Often they'll try to find some Jews, hide behind Jews, and you can always find Jewish people, whether it's in Israel or in England or the U.S., who will attack Israel and say, well, you know, it's a Jew who said it, or you'll find a Holocaust survivor to say something against Israel, uh, or you find someone who's very well respected in the world of human rights or anti-racism, someone like Nelson Mandela. And surely it, 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 it is an effective uh, device to have someone who's very credible. But um, at the end of the day, uh, I think you, you, you can only answer the facts. And I don't think one is going to gain very much by trying to discredit Nelson Mandela, who did many great things for his people, even though he was very wrong when it came to things like his attitude towards Arafat and Gaddafi and some other uh, dictators or Marxist countries. And those are wrong. I think one can stick to the facts. And as you said, um, uh, I, I think that's that's the way to just say on the facts. He's wrong. You know, you have other South Africans who've been to Israel and know that you know if you compare Israel to apartheid, it means you don't you don't understand two things. You don't understand the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians, and you don't understand what happened in South Africa. And I, I think if we just stick to the facts, you can uh, effectively refute false analogies that are made. Uh, I'm wondering if you feel there's any culpability to the anti-Israel message put out by the United Nations, created or at least assisted and facilitated by political parties in America. Um, so I guess the question they're asking is, does America act with one voice or are there parties in America who take action at the UN that isn't necessarily what the administration's position is? Is that something that happens? Well, um... I don't think that the political parties as such, the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, have a strong presence there when they're, when they're not in power. They, they have a role to play. I mean, certainly the Republican Party at the Human Rights Council is generally uh, AWOL. They're, they're, they're against the Human Rights Council. And so you don't see many Republicans hanging out at the Human Rights Council, I assure you of that. Um, Democrats historically are more engaged uh, for good or for ill, depending on your position. But I would say what you, what you will find are um, very significant players are the NGOs, the non-governmental organizations. Now, our group, UN Watch, is an NGO. That means we are recognized at the United Nations as a non-governmental organization. We have observer status and we can speak. If you've ever seen me speak at the United Nations or victims that we've brought to speak at the United Nations, that's because we have the right to speak there. And NGOs are, can be quite significant. The superpower NGOs, and there's a group NGO Monitor, which does excellent work in monitoring them, um, they'll talk about this, but groups like Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch are very influential. To, at the Human Rights Council, you have governments present in the room, and you have NGOs that speak and are, and are part of the system uh, and are quite influential, especially at the Human Rights Council, more so than at other UN bodies the government speak and then the NGO speak, but the Human Rights Council has 55 different mandates of experts, the expert on torture, the expert on freedom of religion, the expert on Palestine. Those are 55 different positions and they're not paid. So the NGOs will send them a 100 page document. The NGOs have a lot of money. Amnesty International, I don't know if their budget is $50 million. Ken Roth, Human Rights Watch had, last time I checked, $220 million in the bank. Okay, uh, George Soros gave him $100 million. That's not an anti-Semitic comment about George Soros. He gave them $100 million over 10 years. Um, so they have $200 million in the bank. They have hundreds of staff. They will write 50-page reports 
and send it to the UN expert on uh, torture and say, you know, you need to go after Israel. And the UN expert will get a report from Human Rights Watch. And they are very influential in shaping the legitimacy of that person's mandate. And so coming back to the question, is the Democratic Party present at, at the Human Rights Council? Not if they're not in power. Now that the Biden administration is in power, they've said they're going to engage with the Human Rights Council. And we're going to work with them to make sure that they do to do everything we can to see that they do the right thing and speak out when terrible things happen. It's not obvious. Obviously, in the Democratic Party, there are voices that are more anti-Israel than we ever had before, whether it's AOC, Rashida Tlaib, and others. And they will be pressuring the Biden administration not to be such you know, perfect defenders of Israel as was in the past. In the past, the Obama administration, even though they allowed that infamous 2334 to pass, they always voted against anti-Israel resolutions at the Human Rights Council. Whether that'll be the case going forward, I hope it will be the case. It's not, it's not certain. But coming back to the NGOs, someone like Ken Roth from Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International and other major NGOs can play a very pernicious role. And some of them do come from America. And so the, the debate in America will be increased now that the US is there. And how America votes and what it says will be a subject of debate. It's something we'll be a part of. And I hope people on this call, if, if they're, again, subscribed to our website, unwatch.org, they follow us on social media, they'll get key information. And they can make sure that their congressperson, especially the Democratic congressman or congresswoman, that they know what's happening at the Human Rights Council and that they act and vote accordingly. That will be quite important in terms of what the U.S. will do. Thank you for listening to Uncharted, the UN Watch podcast. See you next time. Thank you.